0: as best as we can as honestly as we can to to be here with a a listening ear and an open heart and um, we've already begun to shift our focus to looking at the example that you gave us when you were in the garden and um, you were right on the edge of the cross with everything that was riding on that moment and you made a choice that's that's been a blessing for all of us lord and for the world and we wanna think about that, we wanna look at it, we wanna sit with it, and we wanna also, Lord, take our own lives and put it into that context. And so I, I wanna ask you to just be with everybody who's here, all of us, Lord. I, I always say this, but you know everything. You know what's going on in our lives. You know, the, you know the stuff that we're dealing with right now. Some of us are walking through a pretty good time in our lives when we think there's not a lot of maybe difficulty. Others of us, we're in the middle of a very painful and rigorous period and we so desperately sense our own need for your grace. And, and Lord, I, I, I just pray that you would meet us where we are. To those of us who are tempted to be too proud to hear you, I pray that we would humble ourselves. For those of us who maybe think that, that we're, we're too disappointing to really be able to receive your love, I pray that you would remind us that there's no limit to your power and grace. You know us, you love us, you call us to, to yourself, and I pray that you would just be with us. I let your grace flow like life-giving, life-giving water in this place. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Let it be so. Jesus in the garden, the choice that, that had to be made. You know, we're we're sitting with this series, Crossroads, talking about not only the road that Jesus took that leads him to the cross, and that's a road that a lot of people are thinking about at this time of the year, people all over the world, billions billions of people, millions and millions of people, at least right now, turning their eyes intentionally to think about what Jesus did for us. So we're also thinking about that road to the cross, but, but the juxtaposition of the idea of Jesus having to come to places where he had to make a choice. The same thing with you and me. We come to these crossroad moments where we get to decide if we're going to move forward with him. My, my passion and, and desire is to see all of us choose to follow him especially when it may even cost us something. So, you know, we we looked at the uh, decisions that were made in the upper room last week. We talked about, we contrasted the choice between Jesus and Judas. Talked about how Judas made his choice and betrayed Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus made a decision to give an example to, to his disciples. When they were arguing about who was the greatest, he got down and he washed their feet. We sat with those things. I'd like us to flash back to that moment again And I want to set the stage because there was a lot of things in motion. And uh, if we can, in our mind's eye, try to imagine what's going on, let's just go up into that upper room with Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. This is the night before before he's going to be crucified on the following day. He's going to be betrayed. He knows it. He's celebrating Passover, but he also says, this is the last Passover I'll share with you, so it becomes the last supper. And in that place, he, he has been positioning the disciples to be aware of some things that are going to happen. Anyway, a lot of things are going on. We know that at that moment, Judas has left into the night. He's gone. um, As we mentioned last week, he's yielded for whatever his twisted reasoning uh, to the voice of evil and made his way into the night to complete his betrayal and lead the enemies of Jesus to the secret garden place that he knows Jesus will be at. The Jerusalem authorities, they are actually preparing with perverse and gleeful satisfaction because, why? They have met with the insider who has told them he will lead them through uh, the darkness to the very spot where they can arrest Jesus, and they would be able to do it with a significant amount of discretion so as not to upset the people. There were a lot of people who believed in Jesus, and the the leaders in Jerusalem understood that if they had arrested Jesus in public daylight, they they risked a riot, and so uh, they didn't do it. Because they didn't want to create a disturbance that would then cause Rome to take interest. It was very important. They had a very fragile relationship with Rome, and a lot of it was contingent on peace. And so there was an unbelievable sense of delight when none other than one of Jesus' own chose to help them get him arrested at a place where only he would have known Jesus could have been in the midst of darkness. It was almost too good to be true. And then, of course, we know while that's happening, while Judas is meeting with the authorities, they're preparing to go and leave the city and and follow Judas to the garden where he says Jesus will be there. I'm guaranteeing that. Jesus himself is with the disciples, and they are simultaneously walking out of the city gates of Jerusalem. They're, They're coming down, and they're going into the valley of the Kidron, walking up from the Kidron to the Mount of Olives, going into a garden, an olive grove called Gethsemane, a place where they had gone before, a spot where they had met more than a few times. And uh, Jesus knows, though, that as he's walking, that this time will be different than, than the other times. He understands that he is actually walking into a trap. It's not something that is a surprise to him. He also knows painfully that it will be his friend and one of his own disciples that will, will spring the trap. And yet there is another part of him that knows that this is exactly how things are supposed to be, that they are exactly as the Father had shown him it would be. It was the hour for which he was born, and he understood that he was entering the hour, and it was now at hand, as he would say. And so he goes there with the understanding that the great work of salvation that he was born for is about to now move into its final hour and begin with a force and a power that would alter history and shake the spiritual universe at its core. I don't think we truly appreciate the shaking that occurs when Jesus dies and what actually is meant by the power of the resurrection. You know, I was, I was reading an article recently uh, because there was a, a, a photo um, exhibit that someone had taken um, on, after the tsunami had hit in Japan. It's, it's hard to believe it was almost uh, two years ago that earthquake hit and the the title the the wave of magn, magnificent force occurs but i was i was reading this article and i was shocked because uh, i didn't realize how powerful it was that earthquake it said that the earthquake was so powerful that it actually shifted the entire island of japan 8 feet closer to the united states so powerful was that earthquake that it literally it says that 4 inches it shifted the Earth on its axis. It's hard. To, I mean, the, the sheer force and power of that quake, and and yet, I, I, I must, do we realize that at a spiritual level, that what occurs with Jesus. You know, that's that's traumatic natural power unleashed with all of its devastating effects. But the power of Christ to literally alter and turn an entire universe, that the entire center of the spiritual universe is boring down to this very hour. That on the cross, everything changes. That there is going to be a monumental shift. That I think is not coincidence that there was an earthquake as Jesus is dying. There's just something about it at a spiritual dynamic that was occurring that we often don't appreciate. But when I was looking at this, I, I was reminded of what happened earlier in the night. After Judas had left, and prior to them getting to the garden, there was a prayer that Jesus uttered. And I put, we put this in the handout. It's in John 17. I want to look at it real quickly here. Jesus is, again, he's in the upper room. Judas has left. This is before they head out, out of the city, into the towards the garden on the Mount of Olives. It says that Jesus, after saying all these things, Jesus Looked up to heaven. And, and again, he's with his disciples and he, and he lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And then he says, I brought you glory I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me to the glory we shared before the world began. This is an intense moment of prayer. And again, the disciples are watching Jesus. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he and begins to say, Father, I pray that you would, you would be with me in this hour, that this hour has come, that, that you would glorify your Son in this hour, and that I would give you the glory back to you. I mean, it's an amazing statement. What is the hour? What's he talking about? He's talking about this decisive moment, right? He's basically saying the decisive moment is upon us. The hour is now. The time for which all things have been building for three years since he was born. And in some mysterious way, from the beginning of eternity, whenever that is, from eternity past, he says that hour is now upon us. Everything has been building for this moment. He can sense it. He can see it. And he knows what it means. He says glorify. What does that mean? Lord, give honor. Give honor to you. Give honor to me. It speaks of the cross. It speaks of even more his resurrection and his ascension. And you can feel eternity is in his words. It's almost like in that, one, look at, you know, that fourth verse there where he says, I have completed the, I've completed the work you gave me to do. In other words, I finished the work that, that, that has brought me to this final hour. But he knew that this final hour was going to be his hardest hour. He knew that it was going to be his most difficult hour. He knew that in many ways this was an hour that he couldn't escape from. It was, and there was, if we're honest, a part of Jesus that recoiled from this moment. Why? He understands the implications of this hour, of this moment. It's like sitting with him in such an intense way. I mean, he gets it. He gets the fact that he's about to be betrayed. And we're going to talk about this, but there's so much more going on at a spiritual level. As I was looking at that, I was reminded of an earlier conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. He was a, he was a religious leader who admired Jesus from a distance because he was scared that his friends and peers might discover that he had that admiration and intrigue with Jesus. And so he asked Jesus if he could meet with him in the, in the secrecy of the evening, in nighttime. And under the cloak of darkness, he met with Jesus. And in the course of their conversation, which is quite profound and significant, and, and a majority of that conversation is written down in John 3, In the course of that conversation, Jesus interacts with him and he starts talking to him about spiritual things. He starts talking to him about what it means to have your eyes open to the things God is doing to be born again. And then Jesus, it's in the course of that conversation that he makes a statement that I believe most of us will immediately recognize. it's as he's talking to this man, this highly intellectual man who's trying to figure out who Jesus is, that Jesus discloses to him the primary purpose for which he has come. It is in the course of their conversation that Jesus says, Listen. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, life unending, life overflowing, life eternal. Then he says, for God sent his son, listen, not into this world to condemn it. It already has death on it. But that the world through him might be saved. It was a powerful, profound exchange. And he was basically saying is that God has decided to give humanity a chance By giving himself away for it. That that he would pay a price that we could never pay. That he essentially would become God's life jacket. That God would rescue us through his son. And it was a statement. It's almost like he's saying, look, we're all drowning, but God is acting. God is giving himself away. And I think it's important because he's saying that I, I am going to be the avenue whereby life comes and, and, but it's almost like he's saying, not only has God planned this, but it's also something that I have to choose to do. And in some way, there's an intertwining here, you guys, of both the sovereign plan of God with the necessity of Jesus having to choose to do it. Jesus had to choose to do what the plan of God required. And on that choice, he had to essentially, as a human being, submit to the Father's will and purpose, and it's what makes, you know, what takes place so meaningful. If you think about it, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he have? He has a temptation. It starts it off. He has to choose to submit himself and not use his power in inappropriate ways. He then, at the end of his ministry, is going to be here in the garden. And in the garden, he is going to have to make a final decision where he chooses to give his life away and suffer with tremendous indignity. In both cases, think about it. The beginning and the end, temptation and a garden. It flashes us all the way back to the very beginning when in a different garden, another temptation came and a choice was made that led humanity off into a completely different direction. Now, in a different garden, a choice will be made by another representative human being, the Son of God himself, and he will take the cup that was not drunk earlier and drink it all the way down. Look what's going to happen. He's going to submit himself. Go, go, okay, let's reset this moment. Let's, let's go back to where we were. After Jesus' prayer in John 17, he refers to his hour and his disciples with the exception of Jesus. What do they do? They make their way out of Jerusalem, again, into the Valley of Kidron. I'm going to put a picture up, just in case some of us, you know, we, we sometimes forget how real the scriptures are and how much of the places that Jesus walked, we can still walk. Right now, we're, that view is actually from the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And we don't know the exact spot, but you can see olive groves there, trees that have been there for generations. Um, it looks down on the ancient city of Jerusalem. What you can see there is, with the, is the eastern wall, very important. Underneath it would have been the walls that Jesus would have seen. If you go around the city, you can see that now there's the, the Dome of the Rock there, but in Jesus' time, it was not there. It was the Temple Mount. On the other side, the western side, is what you call the Wailing Wall. It's the the remnant of the original temple that is uncovered and there. This is the land of Jesus. This is the place where all of this takes place. Jesus would have left the city gates on the eastern side, coming down into the valley that separates the Mount of Olives and the city. He would have come down into that valley, walked up the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and he gets to the garden. And in the garden, This is what happens. Let's look at it. Mark 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, will you sit here while I pray? And he took Peter and he took James and he took John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Would you just stay here and watch with me? And he went a little further. The older version says a stone's throw. He went a little further and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Father, he said, Abba, Father, Papa, Father, a term of in deep intimacy. He said, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, not what I will, but what you will. It was a powerful, profound moment. You got to understand, everything is riding on this. There's such an intensity here. I mean, Jesus is here in the garden, his hour is hours at hand. He knows it. His enemies are approaching with resolute fury. They've got torches in their hands and swords unsheathed. He can feel the darkness closing in. He can feel in some way that you and I will never be able to fully appreciate the very breath of hell upon him. And in that moment, as he's waiting, there's a part of him that wants to leave, that wants to to flee like like he knows, sadly knows, his disciples are going to do. And he understands what's coming. He understands that for the first time in his life, he's going to experience separation from the Father. He's going he's gonna to experience guilt, and not just one man's guilt. He's going to experience guilt at a level that none of us can ever understand, the guilt of humanity. He's going to bear it. He understands what's coming as well. At a physical level, he's going to experience tremendous um, suffering. He is also going to experience betrayal. If we've ever been stung by betrayal of those closest to us, if we've ever felt abandoned, Jesus felt all of that. He knows what it means to be utterly abandoned by the people who loved him. He understands that the cross also entails, in addition to everything that is spiritual and everything that is hellish in nature, that there's going to be an aspect of it that is utterly humiliating, that he is going to be stripped down. He's going to be stuck up on a, on a, a cross next to two common thieves treated no better than a petty thief as he sits there, virtually naked, spit on, after he's been brutalized and his body literally broken in pieces, he's hanging there only to hear his fiercest opponents mock him, spit on him and say, if you're the son of God like you said you were, why don't you get yourself down off that cross? It's intense. He sees it coming. He knows what's happening. He says, like any of us would say, Father, if, it is, if there is another way to do this, show me it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that's what everything hinges on. And with those words, the choice is made. The victory is already, the die is cast right there. It's, it's, it is the beginning of the end of something. And, the, and in a way, it's the prelude to a new beginning. And Jesus decides right then and there that he is going. You know what it's called? Some people call it the great reversal. Paul described it this way in an amazing verse in Romans 5, 18. We're going to put this up. This verse is fascinating because it describes, at least in part, he says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness, his willingness to die in our place, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. The only prerequisite for this new life, is to receive it. Someone said, well, what do I have to do? Believe and receive. Now, there are other things attached at times once we make that decision. Jesus said, you know what? This is like a gift. And and what he was saying in Romans 5, 18 was, this is the great reversal. What was broken in the beginning is now being turned around. And what brought death now brings life. And it means that if we open up our life to him, but we still, it's like a gift. It's like... A gift is a gift, and yet a gift, if it's just sitting on the side, it's waiting to be signed, it's basically signed, sealed, and delivered. All that is necessary is for us to receive it. Still have to choose to receive it. I was, I was telling someone, you know, after you make that decision to receive Jesus, and it's, is it that simple? Yes. Yes. Then you should. I said, go ahead and be baptized. But what he said to do was, follow me when you make that commitment Receive that baptism. Baptism, think about it, is going into the grave and coming out into newness of life. It's like coming out a new person. What we are doing symbolically is almost like, you know, we're think, I'm going to use another descriptive. When we come out of the womb, we, in a sense, we come out of the water. It's part of, I think, what Jesus was getting at when he was actually talking to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born of water and of spirit, of natural and spirit. It's like we come out into new life. There's something about that decision that we make, and then of course we get to decide if we're gonna follow him and all that that entails. But this idea of opening up our life to him and letting him, what he chooses to do has such a significant effect for all of us. Now, okay, in the closing minutes that we have here, as, we, as uh, what I would like to do is take it and shift it over to where we are. And uh, let me just put, start it by suggesting this. The example of Jesus reminds us of some things. One of the things it reminds us of is that life is full of choices, and those choices are going to require a tremendous amount of courage to make the right choice. And I use the word courage because Jesus modeled that there are some, there are some chapters in life where it's going to take tremendous courage to make uh, the right choice, where a sign should almost be, I guess, posted that says caution Courage required here. Tremendous courage required here. Maybe some of us are walking in that right now. You know, I, was, I, had, a, I had a professor. Um, he, he, I Actually, when I first read about, about him, he, I read his, his books, and I had a chance when I was in seminary to, to, to listen to him share. But um, Louis Smeads was a professor who, who recently died. But he wrote, he wrote something about courage that has stuck with me through The years, he described courage as having two sides. He says there's a, what I call an aggressive courage, or he says he says it's the kind of courage that people have when they have to really face something and they put their lives on the line. We immediately recognize. We say that was amazing, amazingly courageous. They risk something of their own well-being. Some people we we, we realize when we see people doing things that require valor or fortitude. Um, they they put their own well-being um, in a place of peril, and, and we go, wow, that was amazingly courageous. We can, when we see it, we recognize it immediately. We call the people like that heroes. But, he also, but you know what he said? He goes, but there's another kind of courage. Because Jesus, Jesus had that courage, no question about it. But Smith said there's another kind of courage. He called it passive courage. And he said, and he described it this way. And just listen to what he writes. This is on your hand. I just want you to listen. He says, people show courage just by struggling long against present adversity. They do not risk death. They risk living. It takes a lot of courage just to hang on to life when the sullen days of wearying winter are too long and dark to endure. We dig in daily. We bear what we We desperately do not want to bear. We make no bones about not wanting it either. Sometimes we even rage against the unfairness of it all, and yet we live with it, and now and then we feel good about the tough life we live. He was saying, that's courage. And then he he said, there's another kind of courage. He started talking about a courage that maybe when I first heard him share this, I wouldn't have appreciated, but I think as I'm getting older, I start to appreciate it more. But he goes, there's sometimes when we need courage just to face things that we want to we don't want to face. He goes, and then there's sometimes as we get older, he says, he says, we often need this kind of courage as we get older. I know when we're young, maybe we don't relate to this, but he, he said it in his own unique way. He says, when our spicy juices turn to a sluggish syrup, when we feel in every joint a rusty resistance to healthy intentions, when our sexual drive is more memory than temptation, and we take, we notice too often that too many of our old friends have died. It takes courage to celebrate life when we're numbering our days. The point is, a lot of times courage shows up in ways that are not always, you know, like heroic. A lot of times courage just shows up because people choose to keep their commitments, stay open in their heart to God. I mean, I was talking to someone after service this morning and they were saying, you know, when you were talking about courage, passive courage, because it, it reminded me of my mother and how courageous she was to keep her commitments to all of us. And here is this man who's also advancing in years, going back to his mother's courage. And he goes, no one would ever have seen it. But it took tremendous courage to just stay faithful and committed and loving us so well. I thought, that's a beautiful kind of courage. Maybe sometimes God calls some of us to places of courage in ways that we Maybe we want to run from, and this is the second piece here, which is this, that Christ does really remind us that in these difficult places that we are to pursue his plans, you guys, that, that oftentimes we need to say with him, not my will, but your will be done. Um, you know, when we face something we don't want to face, when we, when we come into, into a place in our lives where we, part of us just wants to run away, have, have you ever been there? I have. Sometimes we want to run away because it looks too imposing to us. Sometimes we want to run away because we don't feel like we have what it takes to be able to stand through this thing. And on top of that, sometimes we have a track record of running away, and that leads into a scripting in our life where we've shown that if the right buttons are pushed, we tend to fold up. And so, you know, some, I was trying to, some of us also, what we saw modeled, honestly, were people who quit. And so, so much of our framework is if, you, if you're like me, you came from a broken home, there's no way around it. You know, I remember some of the challenges that go along with that. Because when you see, you say, oh, I, you know, everybody has, we all have stuff. That's true. But you know what? There's no way that when we experience something happening that, that is hard, when we watch someone quit on a commitment, and that, that, that something about that doesn't affect us. Because we all have fallback patterns. You know that? Our fallback patterns are typically connected to our experiences and to what we saw modeled. And when the heat is on, we tend to reproduce the very thing that sometimes we despise. And part, listen to me, part of what Christ wants to teach us is how to grow through that and how to, in a way, set a new thing in place. There are things in the past that many of us would have either run from or caved into that God's trying to teach us how to grow past and how to learn how to live courageously and steadfast and to face things and not run away when we're afraid or quit when we get weary, but learning how to follow the model of Christ, how to take up our cross daily and follow him. And we begin to learn that this Christian life of ours is meant to rewrite stories. It's meant to rewrite our story. It's meant to grow us we are to become increasingly like him. As I have thought about Jesus, I thought about how he modeled what it is like to stand when he didn't want, he didn't want it. I love, you know what, I love the fact that Jesus said, I don't want this. I don't. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want it. That, that is a very real, what would have happened if Jesus quit? He quit on us. I don't want to do it but he chose to do it. And I thought in that moment, it's such a great model for us because what did, and what did he do? There's a couple of key things in there. Do you see them? One of the things he does, which is a key for all of us if we want to really get better and grow stronger and build new patterns in our lives and take sometimes things that were passed down to us generationally that we call sometimes dysfunctions, sometimes they're sins. Sometimes there's stuff that we've got. We, got it, we acquired it in our college days, our high school days. It's been haunting us our entire lifetime. God wants to take that and do a new thing. And he wants to produce breakthrough and strength. And one of the things Jesus does, you know what he does? Think about this. When he gets to that spot, he brings his disciples with him. Now, they were not going to be of any real use to him. In the moment when everything hits, they're going to Run. But he, And he knows that, and yet he still says, will you come with me? And then he doesn't even just say that. He says to the other, to three of them, would you also come a little further with me? James, Peter, John, can you do, can you do me a favor? I need you to, to sit, and I need you to pray and watch with me. I know you don't understand everything that's happening here, and in part of Jesus is going, and I know you're going to let me down in a fabulous way. <laughs> but just having you here with me matters. I know you love me. You're just weak. But I got to pray. So the one thing is he's not alone. He's got other people in his life. We don't just say it to say it. There's only, you cannot grow. There are some things that are going to absolutely require others with us because that's how God mediates his grace into our lives. Not isolated. Even Jesus said, come with me. And then what does he do? He engages a spiritual discipline. He prays. He begins to ask God to come into his situation. In his crisis hour, he falls back into a pattern that he has kept his entire life. He drops into the place of prayer. And he begins to pray, Father, in this moment, when everything is riding on this moment, and I can feel feel hell all around me, and I know what's about to happen, I, I don't want it. I want to run right now, but I pray that you will help me to hold my ground. I say to you even now, Father, not my will. Your will be done. And he holds. And then, of course, it's a reminder to make those adjustments, right? It's a reminder to, to, to as, he real, as he essentially aligns himself with the Father, right? Basically what he does is he says, he, okay, this is what I'm trying to get at. I hope I can convey it properly. If Jesus is saying, Father, Get me in the place that I need to be because I need to get myself ready to face this thing all the way through. So I pray that you will get me adjusted right. Align me right for the hour that is upon me even now. And it's like the Lord reminds us there are times we've got to make adjustments in our lives. That, that, that there's got to have to be, a, sometimes we've got to tweak our pattern of living. As soon as we get ourselves into a way of going about things, that, that we're not going to have enough strength to go through it. we get. We need strength. And that's, I might as well put it this way. The last piece of this is this, that he gives us grace, his grace. Number three, his choice reminds us that there is available grace to prevail. Not only grace to cover me in my weakness when I don't meet up and when I fail. That I understand. But also grace, listen, loved ones, for all of us because he loves us dearly. Grace to be able to do the things that he's asking us to do, to face the things he's asking us to face, to not run when part of us wants to run, to not quit when it's easier to quit, to not take the easier way, but sometimes to choose the way of the cross so that others may live out of that choice. If Jesus, because of what he did, we all live, how many people will live if we choose to do things God's way in our own lives? How many people are we destined to affect who are not even yet born and we will never even know? But by choices we make, by the grace of God at work in our lives, it alters things at a spiritual level that goes far beyond anything at a visual level. We're in deep places. It matters. How we live matters. How we choose matters. He showed us how to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We're open as, as we can be. I suppose you know everything. But, you know, Lord, again, we're reminded that your grace is available to us, but there are going to be times when you're going to ask us and invite us to also utter that, that prayer, those seven words, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Where you're going to teach us that the real victory comes in surrendering and trusting you. Yes, even with our weakness, our fears, um, even our self will, we trust you. By your grace, we will do things your way. And we will, we will, we will be reminded that in some places that we just don't have the strength in our own, there are some things at a spiritual character level that we're not strong enough, Lord. It's like extra strength is gonna be required. And that's where we need you to really be with us and to help us to do the right things. So we, we ask for your blessing we pray that our, our faith would just increasingly grow in the weeks ahead. Um, that we would be challenged by your example. Ask for your blessing. I love you, Jesus. Pray your blessing and grace over us as we close the service out with our song and our time of giving. May you be honored in it as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.